0: But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box
0: Score. Uh. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with soprano Alexandra Bork. Bork is a gender non-conforming soprano who just returned to the U.S. after working in the storefront opera scene in the U.K., and then it's the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land with our team's hot takes on those stories. Plus, in Chalk Talk, Spanish soprano Montserrat Caballé has died at age 85. We take a look back at her career. And, of course, don't forget, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard during our two-minute drill segment. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your take on this week's opera stories. 847 847- Eight six six nine six eight seven you can also tweet us at Opera Oliver Camacho, just you and me tonight.
2: You'll never believe it, but I live with a straight guy. And uh, he definitely
0: did not see that
2: coming.: <laughs> And he's, he's French and he spends a lot of time watching that um, I knew. He spends a lot of time watching soccer, or as they call it football. Um, and uh, so I've been you know exposed to a lot of European football. But last night we were watching the Texas versus Texas game. It was like Houston versus Dallas, I guess. The right. N F That's right. the National Football League, mm-hmm. you know, our football. Yeah. And um, yeah. Apparently, the game went into overtime. Like I was, I watched like the first quarter. Okay. And we got up to halftime, and then we changed the channel. We watched yeah. Kidding on Showtime, and then came back, and the game was still going on. And I ended up not even, I don't even know what happened last night. So if somebody knows what happened, please call us here at 847-866-9687 so that uh, I can learn the result uh, of this game.
0: I I do know what happened. Oh, really? Tell me. No, 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 it's okay. Tell me. I'm not going to
2: watch it. Texans won with a field goal. But they're all from Texas. Uh, uh,
0: the, The Houston Texans.
2: That's the name of their team, the Texans?
0: The Houston Texans.
2: That's not an animal or like a racist. It's, it's
0: like a well, it's not racist. It's a bull. I, I think. Okay. You know who also didn't lose yesterday was mm. the Bears.
2: Oh really? Does yep. that mean that they're they're qualifying for the Super Bowl? No, the Bears also oh.
0: weren't playing yesterday. Oh, so. okay. What are
2: they playing on Thursday or something? Or?
0: Um, I think it was just their bi okay. week. Okay. Week Their
2: bisexual week.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah, I don't Oliver. know. You have to explain. Like, bisexual like, week. <laughs>
1: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
2: Was a little bit of soprano Alexandra Bork singing "Queto Madre" from Madame Butterfly, and we don't normally. Can you hear me? Uh, we don't normally think of countertenors as singing Madame Butterfly, which is why we're just saying soprano. Uh, one really cool thing about uh, Alexandra Bork is that they are Korean, so it does sort of you know make it easy. You don't have to put on yellow face. <laughs> like, when you're performing Madame Butterfly. Uh Alex, are you on the line? Yeah. Did you ever perform this role of Butterfly, the whole thing?
3: Yeah, I did about seven performances in two thousand and sixteen. Wow. Um, both in London and in Brighton.
2: Huh. And how did that go? How was how was that received?
3: Um, got a good review. But I mean the I found that, you know anyone listening out there, twenty five is way too young to stand that big and um I was very lucky to have any voice after it. But it's the kind of role that I found to be um the most gratifying kind of because it taught me both to trust my instincts in acting and to it taught me what I can and cannot more importantly do vocally. Well And there... it really kinda of, that kind of really was the tripping point for me entering this sort of realm. Um because it was offered. And my teachers at the time were very much, well, we don't know what this is going to be, but we'll try it. Okay. And then that kind of opened up every door since then for me. And haven't looked back. I mean, I've looked back a lot, but um, I haven't walked back yet.
2: Well, I'm going to go back a little bit just to give some background. Um, You went to school at, um, was it Roosevelt or DePaul? I forget. DePaul DePaul University here in Chicago, and while you were there, that's where I met you, and we have a mutual friend, and I got to hear you sing a lot uh, in very close proximity, um, soprano repertoire as Alex Bork, and then you decided to move to London, and a lot of things started happening in your life as a singer, and if you could just... Take us back to then and some of the decisions you you made when you moved from Chicago to the UK.
3: Well, first, when I was in Chicago, um, the moment I even before I even had, when I was still living in Kentucky, which is where I'm from, I I had I didn't start singing until high school, and that's kind of when YouTube and all that stuff came out. And so I was, you know, I was I didn't know the word character. was a word. I didn't know anything of really. I was very sheltered, and so I kind of just learned and picked up things. Of a lot of del canto singers that i really admired and a lot of early music and so i was just singing that stuff for fun not realizing i was singing it in a weird octave quote unquote <laughs> and then when in the incorrect
2: music, octave for a man
3: exactly and then i moved to chicago to do my to be my undergrad and um the department as loving as they were they didn't really know what to do with me and so i was taken out of the performance track despite being in a scholarship student with a 4.0 and who also worked very actively tutoring music theory and foreign language diction to other singers um, for several years. Um, I got the boot and had to really scramble to graduate on time. I had to... Um, uh, so I focused on languages. Um, so I didn't get to take a single... I didn't get to take any acting classes after I got the boot. I didn't... Any repertoire, any coaching. So basically... When I I applied on a whim, I applied to the Royal Academy of Music in London for a master's. I didn't, you know, I was working full-time at a restaurant. I didn't have any, I had never really done a full, full role except for a cover. And so I had all this passion but had no idea, I didn't have the technique or the facilities to use anything with it. And so when they accepted me, I really... I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so right around the same time is when I was introduced to you and Eugenia. And that was in 2013, 2014. And that's when um, I remember Eugenia being very formative by I would bring things like Strauss and Brahms and she wouldn't say, that's, oh, that's a bit unusual. She would say, oh, let's do it. It was enthusiasm about music first. And not any conceptions outside of that. And so, so
2: we're talking about uh, Dr. Eugenia Chang, a mathematician, author, and resident scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, uh, whose newest book is The Art of Logic. And she has like a column in the Wall Street Journal, and she had a profile in the New York Times. And in Chicago, she is the founder. She was on
0: Colbert, wasn't she? Yeah, she was, was on Stephen
2: Colbert show, yeah. And in Chicago, she is the founder of something called the Liederstube, which is also known as the Oasis for art song, where people gather on a monthly basis to just sing Lieder for each other. And uh, yeah, and you were singing repertoire that is not commonly associated with counter tenors, but because she really just enjoys music making for its own sake and doesn't think so much about like fock and gender. You really were able to express yourself musically there, and you gained a lot of fans. I remember you sang Strauss' four (laughs) last songs over there. So,
3: oh, I mean, there was that was kind of a mess a bit in retrospect. But which actually, I was singing, I was practicing feeling today, and the first time in you know four or five years, I can actually say I actually can sing it. (laughs) But the the night, which is yay, improvement. I didn't waste my tuition. But, um,
2: well, so one the, of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show was mm-hmm. because um, there was this article that came out this summer in conjunction with a show you did about clowns. What is that name of that show called? The... It's, it
3: was an opera called I'm Not a Bit Like a Clown, okay. which was written by um, Royal Academy alumni and up-and-coming really amazing composer Laura J. Bowler and directed by Poppy Burton Morgan as part of the exhibition on opera at the Victoria, sorry, Albert and Victoria, sorry, Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and that was that whole project was spearheaded originally using composers and living living composers and librettists for this exhibition through the Royal Opera House initiative, and it was, um, and so the when the libretto was picked for this, it was based off of text verbatim from a four-year-old and. So it's, it was fascinating using those, that kind of those kind of scripts in, in fact, and just how gender-free a lot of that that text is, and then you know the humor and the and the brevity from just some of the ridiculous, amazing and deep, strangely deep things sometimes that can come out of a child's mouth.
2: Well, there's an arts uh, website. I don't know if it's journalism or a blog uh, called MetaTheatre.co.uk. Uh, meta with two T's. And they profiled you, and did an interview called Soprano Alexander Bork Challenges the Opera Industry's Problematic Relationship with Gender Norms. And I think that gets the heart of why I wanted to uh, bring you on the show today, because of your very unusual path. I mean, there's the whole thing about being an American in the UK, which we might have time for after the break, but uh, I would love to hear about how you present yourself as a soprano. And if you could just go ahead and tell us a story about your decision to um, declare yourself as a soprano as opposed to a countertenor.
3: Well, let's first, again, let's first just establish that um, the word unusual, let's use the word uncommon. Okay. Because <laughs> um, um, I remember just recently, I had a coaching at Welsh National Opera and the, this um, summer, and I was introduced to someone from the cast of War and Peace, very friendly person, was really good friends with my coach, but then um, when... He was proudly declaring that I was working on things like Jotiligi, um and things like that that I had performed this year. Um, instead of saying, oh, that... You know, and this is, again, it's a gut reflex to say that's unusual rather than saying it's uncommon. Mm-hmm. And unusual has, you know, a lot of that baggage with it of it's something that un- is not really um, inherently good to the unusualness. Heard. So um, I... Uh, It's interesting. like When I was first, you know, singing along and stuff like that, I never really, um, in undergrad especially, Like, I remember counter-tenor was never really something, a description that matched me. And it's one of those things with, along with being non-binary, I slowly, you know, I look back now and I realized that when I was doing Butterfly, I realized that I had never actually, whatever I would refer to myself, I usually don't gender myself in conversation, like my entire life. Um, It was something that was very foreign to me it was something that and you know I had no idea that I wasn't doing that and so when I moved to the uk and so I'm sorry when I was back in Chicago I just always called myself um, a soprano and I remember when I did a master class with um, Mark Creighton from Roosevelt University that um he was just like he didn't he did, i don't think he even called me a male soprano he just called me a straight-up soprano and and it didn't really plant a seed or anything it was just Something that I I started putting down whenever I applied for things. And I noticed that um, if people would, if I would work with people in in real life or audition for them live, they wouldn't have that much of an issue with me. But if I would apply for things, you know, that didn't require pre screening or something, just based on the fact that it said soprano, they usually would either chuck it in the garbage or just have a lot of questions or thought it was a mistake or something. Um, And so when Butterfly came around, the conductor of it, he introduced me to someone that, um, named CN Lester, who's um, a non binary mezzo in the UK, who I had the great pleasure of, be- of being introduced to and performing with these past year and a half. And they were very influential in kind of seeing myself in a new light. And again, none of these things I think were necessarily changes, they were just more so choices to ascribe to what was already in motion, which was. I was someone who never really presented anything about themselves in a gendered way, whether it was spoken or how they dressed. It was just something that, you know, people would look at me and think, oh, that's a, that's a boyish person, or that's a, quite a feminine man, or things like that. But it was never really something that was a conscious decision on my part. And so after Butterfly, I started having some auditions, and I noticed that if I literally just, move things around a bit, um, for auditions, they wouldn't, they started, they started responding to me. They started to ask me for live auditions. I would, I mean, it is, you know, kind of useful at the same time. Okay. I just want to be, I want to
2: be explicit about what you're mm -hmm? saying here. You're saying that you originally presented yourself as a soprano when you were first doing auditions, but... You were feeling like you were getting rejected because.
3: Yeah, I would get. I would. Before my. I would even sing. For example, I remember specifically at my master's level audition in the UK, I auditioned for four of the main conservatoires in London. And when I. When I would. And I would sing as I would. I would beast the first round. I would get through immediately to the second round. Based on a tape or so based, on, based,
2: based on. Based on a tape or based on recording or.
3: Uh, no, so in the UK, they don't do pre screening for music colleges, okay. but they're a double round audition. Okay. So I would so I would sing in the first round, and I would be singing things like Mozart and Strauss and Liszt. So, you know, no handle in sight. And if it was handled for the one college that did require oratorio, I did rejoice greatly for the Messiah. So, <laughs> and just to, you know, piss him off. And <laughs> um, so. I remember that it was always in the first round, which the first round is usually a coach or a voice teacher kind of thing, or two voice teachers on a panel. It's always two people. They were always so fascinated, very kind, very excited. And then the second round usually had the head of department, and those people tended to be um, a lot more conservative, and so they didn't know what to do with me. And I remember when I, and in my interviews, it was always very speculative and very kind of condescending. And even at my Royal Academy audition, where I did get in, I remember that half the panel was, were, you know, were so fascinated with me, and the other half were, well, we're going to have to. There was a bit of when they asked when they said, "Well, we're going to have to hit the list because with this air about of that, that I wouldn't be able to sing it."
2: What list were you and offering? Oconjador? Au au Conjuredor. d'Or. Okay. Yeah. So let me get this straight, was, though. Like at these auditions, were you presenting as Alex or as Alexandra?
3: I was presenting as male for these auditions because. Um, the, this is still before – Butterfly was the first female role I ever did. And so that was so – I think when I was dabbling before anyone told me about you know, norms and all that blah, blah, blah stuff, I would be just singing for the hell of it. And then people would see – and then I didn't get a sense that it was weird or anything maybe until right before undergrad.
2: And then after – And then there was
3: a lot of rejection in undergrad. About because of just having a higher voice and singing that and singing, even ca- countertenor repertoire because my voice is too high to sing a lot of that repertoire. Yeah, you're and a soprano. You're not an alto. Yeah. That would suit me. Was, oh yeah, alto was just too low. So anything that was traditionally even sung by maybe like things like Sifare from Mozart's Mitridate, which is you know basically a lyric soprano role, they would then say, oh, this is too high. No one's ever going to do it. So.
2: So th- then go. after Butterfly and you got the counsel to maybe change things around again, then you started going to auditions as Alexandra?
3: Exactly. And okay. I started getting hired.
2: That's great. I, we want, I want to hear about some of the roles that you sang and also some of your opinions about the patriarchy in opera. But we have to step away for a break. If you can hang on for just one minute.
0: Can you sure, stick thanks. around with us, Alexandra? Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break on opera box score. We're going to be right back, continuing the conversation with Soprano Alexandra Borg. Keep it locked. WNUR 89.3 FM.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are, with an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast. We are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? or proposed to the bearer hunk in your life. Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at OperaBoxScore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up.
1: Let's go inside the huddle.
0: Thanks for sticking around with us this evening. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho on Opera Box Score. We are continuing the conversation with soprano Alexandra Bork.
2: So I wanted to get back to the um interview, which yes. we'll post on our website. And uh, near the end of it, you get into some pretty controversial uh, ideas about uh, the opera in general, about the patriarchy in opera, which I actually agree with you about, but I think it's it was really galvanizing to read some of these ideas written down and expressed so clearly. Um, I think a lot of people think that because opera uh, has a sort of like Natural queerness to it, especially Baroque opera, and especially things like Strauss with, you know, cross-dressing women, and Mozart with cross-dressing women. That opera is just very open about gender and about sexuality. But you find that that's not the case, and you have an idea as why.
3: Yeah, I think a better way of I guess articulating that would be well, because that that when I did that conversation, that was completely unprompted, and now I think I have a bit more time to digest that and find a more concise way to put it. I think that because a lot of those things that we could mask as, and brand them as queer ideals of opera to an unsuspecting audience, in actuality, are very, still very much based in the idea of misogyny. And so the idea that, you know, it's, it's, no one blinks an eyelash at a woman wearing trousers, but, you know, they double take if they see someone with long hair or wearing a skirt, and then that person turns around and they see that person has a beard or things like that. And again... And, People don't always see a woman wearing trousers or a suit as something inherently necessarily maybe masculine, but that was you know a big part of the um, dress for success movement and the and the um, emancipation of women and things we're still fighting for. And so when, you, when it comes to opera, I think it's difficult for an audience that isn't necessarily theater engaged to necessarily see all these things unless you. have than in the trenches in a production. And you see inherently, like I remember doing some productions where a director would say, you know, this is quite misogynistic of a plot line and we're going to try to rework it. And then the irony is a lot of the points are kind of still very based in misogyny, a lot of the humor and things like that. Which is, you know, just, which is interesting coming from directors that maybe try to say oh, I'm very woke, I'm very progressive. But then they go to treat the cast in a very misogynistic way, even if they're presenting a very forward-thinking production. And so that's something that I remember discussing this with an instrumentalist, a musical theater singer, and um, a straight theater actor. And they all were kind of that were kind of at my same level, and you know, just graduating and getting into their first jobs. And they saying, "Oh my goodness, this is things that you know, as that you know, people that are under the age of thirty that aren't quite experiencing." these things in the industry as much in their respective industries because there's been you know, these huge outcries against these practices. And I think one of the main differences is because from a funding standpoint is why opera and the old nature of it, as we discussed earlier, is part of the reason why, because of the funding coming from these older sources and needing the funding to stay relevant, is a reason why we're the slowest to update how we address problems within opera
2: exactly our, our audience is still probably the most conservative audience that 's out there, and they love their Zaphielli productions of Tosca and of Bohem and they want to preserve their, they want to preserve things that you're, are you know
0: you 're blaming the wrong people oliver it 's not the audience's fault it 's the people that 's programming the repertoire well, and they 're not finding interesting we 're talking about we 're talking about
2: patronage we 're talking about American opera and patronage and and the people who are Support. But I guess
3: even with the I guess George makes the point though that even with the programming, for example, um a lot of people say, Well why do we why does it matter that we don't have any female composers in what was it? I think Philadelphia's symphony orchestra thing, um, or with the Met and things like that in a particular season. And a lot of the reasons why I think people are actively saying as performers why they find it a problem, is because yes, audience and patronage is a huge part of it, but one of the biggest problems is that You know, if you're, you know, as a fellow brown person, when you're in the audience and you don't ever see anyone on stage or in a movie that ever looks like you, you probably don't feel like you have, that's not going to be something intellectually that's necessarily going to, unless you're pushed in that direction, to excel at. So when people always ask, what's your favorite Disney princess? I would always say, move on, because I'm Asian. (laughs) And people would say, why? And I was like, (laughs) and now as an adult, I can say, why do you think?
2: well i we we have to end soon, but I just want to hear a little bit about um what you know you sang Piotr Ligi, you sang uh, Otavia in Coronation Popea, um you did this clown i have this child opera i'm sorry I keep forgetting the name of it i am not a bit like a clown uh, so you've mm-hmm. had you've had some experience uh, in the um, storefront scene in the u k Do you have any advice for uh, American singers trying to find work in the u k
3: um, first of all, the visa system is extremely complicated and very, very difficult to navigate. Um, it's a very expensive process. I have a lot of friends who have um, been accepted to two places in the UK, but then struggled financially to not necessarily make their own ends meet, but to prove to the government for their own visa usage. Um, financially, it's a weird. T- it is. It is better than it was four years ago, as far as the pound and dollar related, but as far as opportunities are. Concerned, London and the UK at large, but especially London, are mega centers of small opera companies and also, and more than just small opera companies, professional level small opera companies that um, can pay. And there's some, you know, across tiers across the system. Whereas if you are in, and things are changing in the big cities like Chicago, New York, where you are getting more smaller companies popping up, a lot of them um, are either really new and, or a lot of them. Um, are really establishing kind of the problem is they try to they're pushing themselves into the echelon of the higher companies and so I think Americans always struggle with how do you make that bridge gap of semi professional to professional and in the UK I feel like it was a lot more possible just because of the level the the frequency of opportunities is just so much greater.
2: Hmm. And they're willing to take chances on somebody like you. Do you felt? Do you ever feel like you were being used uh, as sort of like a you know circus pony or something like that?
3: Well, the interesting thing is if they ever wanted to use me as a circus pony, it would have been after the fact because I, I've only had one audition to this day, I think, where I've been in the audition and have had a panel pass around a phone and start pointing. And so <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> other than that, I, all of my auditions, I've, I've never had anyone ask me anything remotely gendered because they just think, oh, pretty girl, cool.
2: <laughs> well, I would love to talk more about your experiences. And maybe next time you're in Chicago, we can get you in the studio. But we have to move on to the next segment. So I want to thank you so much. We're going to send people to your SoundCloud page. It's SoundCloud forward slash Alex Bork Soprano. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I've, yeah, like I said, everybody read this interview. It's fantastic on Meta Theater.
0: That's link to that interview is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Ciao
1: this just in the two minute drill
0: Time now for everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. The Opera National du Paris has begun to celebrate its 350th anniversary. More on their current season in a minute. Marilla Opera Program has announced that it's going to establish a new advisory council made up of, quote, leaders in the field of opera performance, young artists training, arts administration, performing, performing arts, and philanthropy. That's going to include David Gockley, Susan Graham, Jake Heggie, Spate Jenkins, Martin Katz... Sarah Solomon and Debra Voigt. More on those names in a second. In an open letter to Peter Gelb, an African-American student in arts administration at the New School named Joshua Banbury, addresses the use of blackface and the casting of Anna Netrebko in the current production of Aida at the Met. Link to that story on our website, upperboxscore.com. Kent State University has canceled its fall musical production of Bernstein's West Side Story following complaints that too many white students landed lead roles. Bridget Martinez, a junior musical theater major who's of Puerto Rican descent, tried out for her, quote, dream role of Maria, but she said, quote, it all just got screwed up when it was given to a white female. Julianne Moore is at the center of the movie Belcanto based on the Anne Patchett novel from 2001. Moore plays Roxanne, a world-class opera singer taken hostage while performing at a politician's party in South America. She didn't create that role alone. Her singing voice is provided by soprano Renee Fleming. Exit stage right. Soprano Montserrat Caballé, who died last week at 85. More to come on her career later tonight on our show. And on this day, I mean Dallas, American mezzo-soprano and the founder of Opera San Jose, would be 93 today. Bass Kurt Redell turns 71. It's also the death anniversary of English contralto Kathleen Ferrier and Austrian stage director Walter Felsenstein. That is your two-minute drill. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Opera Box Score with George CedarQuest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man
0: Camacho. Well, Oliver the Man Camacho is in the studio with me tonight, George CedarQuest. None of those other guys are.
2: I know, and I miss my uh, Peter Dugan and my John Brancy. That was so nice to spend that time with them. And, like, had I planned better, I could have gone out to dinner with those guys last week because they were hungry after yeah. the interview. Yeah. But I already had, like, something in the oven. You, you made know, them home, work
0: so. hard, dude, on that show. I mean, they were, first of all, love those voices, those, like, low voices.
2: The, John can sing, man, And th- it was a, like a 45 minute interview. Uh, I thought I was going to need a lot of material, but um, I ended up only using the back half of it. So one day we're going to have to have like the extended version of the podcast so people can hear it. Go,
0: uh, go back to the archives on our website, <laughs> com, to check that out. It's yeah, a really, John Branson, Peter Dugan, yeah. Seriously, man, it's one of the best interviews you've Aww, done. You're, you're getting thanks. a hot hand right now at lighting up the guests. we got a good guest next week.
2: We certainly do. So well. I'm
0: going to shout that out at the end of the show. Uh, Julianne Moore, that'd be a fun guest. I'll yeah, I'm, we for. should probably
2: try to line that up when the release of this movie comes out.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, this interview is really interesting. I mean, I'm happy that the, the readers of Town and Country magazine uh, might have, you know, turned to the article because Julianne Moore is in a beautiful photo spread. And then they might hear about renee fleming and i think most people have heard of renee fleming but they definitely will you know learn a little bit more about her by reading this article but they're also going to find out some things about julianne moore which i don't know if the opera community will appreciate um one of the questions she was asked was like by renee fleming yeah who's doing the interview in that magazine (laughs) um you know what do you think what would it take to get young people to come to the opera and julianne moore said make it shorter (laughs) um you know which maybe that's maybe that's what we need to do is make it shorter but no. from somebody who's not an expert and uh you know is trying to help us out here with this movie like that's the point of this book and this movie is like to you know add a higher profile to opera re- bring opera back to a prestigious you know cultural mindset and she's talking about making it shorter it was a little bit cutting i thought
0: it was definitely cutting that was that was poorly put i was i'm imagining or I'm trying to imagine what Renee Fleming <laughs> was thinking in her head and did not say. Yeah,
2: but she probably laughed to that. And yeah, but
0: she probably laughed. Yeah. in that gorgeous voice of hers. Mm. I love this advisory council at Merilla. Full disclosure: I've done the Merilla program. Drink. I I will say when you look at this roster, you've got a general director emeritus. Sorry, two general directors directors emeriti. Emeriti, yeah, emeriti. Yeah. Uh, David Gockley uh, at San Francisco Opera and Spate Jenkins from Seattle, so you've got that part taken care of. You got the singing part taken care of in mezzo soprano Susan Graham, soprano Debbie Voigt, Martin Katz, collaborative pianist. I like you, to
2: just say pianist, but yeah, yeah collaborative pianist. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, we understand. And uh, what you're missing from the from the list, obviously, is a director.
2: Well, they also have Jake Heggie. forgot to mention him, a composer. In, in right. Mix, so, yeah.
0: so you've got a composer, too. So you've got the musical side taken care of. you get the admin side taken care of. Where's the acting? Where's the how to collaborate with a director? Where's how to interpret a role, not musically, but dramatically? That seems like a void here to me.
2: I think they have people on staff that do that in the program.
0: But if you're going to make an advisory council... It feels like you want someone of real significance. And God knows San Francisco opera is teeming with artists like that. Uh, somebody like Francesca Zambella. So David, David
2: Goughlin never directed opera? No. He's, oh, okay.
0: he's a phenomenal producer. Okay. Uh, Spate Jenkins, I had to look up. I, he's not directed either. I, I just thought that was unusual. That seemed like a bit of a, a missing they Maybe they, need,
2: they need an advisory council on their advisory council. There we go. <laughs> they should have asked Opera Box Score. I'm surprised that you know uh, Susan Graham is not persona non grata these days. I'm happy for her because because of the whole David Daniels uh, yes. episode. Yeah,
0: did that ever resolve itself? I haven't by the heard way. about it. If
2: anybody has heard about it, now is the time to call.
0: But 847-866-9687. Unless Network you're listening Studio. to
2: the podcast, in which case, send us an email.
0: It's true. If you're in the Chicago area, or if you're streaming at wnur dot org slash pop up. Listeners around the world can listen to our show live. We are the only live talk radio show about opera in the U.S.
2: Really? You don't know? Like, what about WQXR? They don't have an opera show? Weekly. Week okay. in, week out. That's opera of War question. is not a radio show?
0: I, I really loved this letter. And this is on our website <laughs> as well, as I said. This letter from Joshua Banbury to Peter Gelb about the casting of Anna Trebko in the current production at the Met. Let me see if I can pull this up from his website. I'm, I'm, I don't need to so, read the whole dear thing. Dear Mr.
2: Gelb, my name is Joshua Ban- Banbury. I am so-and-so. I am African-American. I'm a singer and a jazz vocalist. Uh, I have a particular interest in forging more opportunities for black people in the fine arts. I'm writing to express my disappointment in the casting of Anna Dutropko in the current production of Aida. It's very disturbing to see Mr. Dutropko's Mr. skin darkened with the use of tanning to play the role of Aida, although this is not an example of classic blackface, um, it still perpetuates the same concept. It suggests that black opera singers are not available to represent themselves on stage, and only white opera singers can tell their stories. And it goes on.
0: Here's his point, right? He says, quote, Verdi intended for the role of Aida to be an Ethiopian princess. Casting a white Russian singer to play the role of a character of the African diaspora is offensive and discouraging to the black community, and more importantly, to black opera singers.
2: Well, I mean, I, I appreciate... This guy's letter, and I'm the reason why I'm even where it's even on the show is because it's circulated pretty widely uh, on Facebook, which is where people get their news these days. But I think that this young man um, might misunderstand what Verdi's intention was. I mean, I'm not sure if Verdi was working with Ethiopian. Princesses. (laughs) princesses <laughs> when he I mean I, I I assumed that the first singer was a time we can look it up you know oh I'm I sure said, it yeah. wasn't
0: it was somebody from like I don't know yeah and, Palermo or something yeah
2: and so um yeah so historically this is what has been done and yes we are now in an age where there are plenty of african-american or or african diaspora singers to perform this role but Anna in goes a name and this is like the opening of the met And they need to sell tickets, and has to be an event. It can't just be anybody in the principal role. And right now—
0: He's not saying it should be anybody. He's saying it should be a black opera singer, and that those people exist, and that they they should not be denied that chance.
2: They they do exist, but right now there is not at the Met a singer who's at the same— level of, who's not elevated as high so as pick Anna a, So pick know.
0: a different production to open the season with then. <laughs> so
2: you agree with Joshua. You know,
0: I'm totally with this guy, 100%. And I didn't think I would say that when I first read this article, but I really am. This is so articulate. I could not agree with it It is guy. very
2: articulate, but he seems to come from it from just the social justice and, and the race aspect of it, and not from the historical aspect or even thinking about you know the production of music, the production of opera, the history of opera. Uh, he's conflating these things. So.
0: Good art is all about the here and the now. I don't know how you can approach art anymore without the social justice concept. Well, of I, construct. I agree
2: with that, but I don't think that, um, I mean, the cast has Anita Rockefeller in it. Do we have yeah. another, he didn't even mention the uh, Amneris in the cast, you know, Does, did he even mention that Anita Rockefeller is not Egyptian, you know?
0: No, no, he doesn't. I mean he's he's got he's gotta pick his battles here. And and it's part of it is about context, right? If you were doing a production of Aida, which in which race had had no relationship to the point of view on the piece, Mm -hmm. then it feels like this would be less of an issue. But if you're gonna do it in a period of production, which is from thirty years ago, the production that they have, and you're saying you're trying to tell the audience, We're in Egypt, we're you know Two thousand years? No, sorry, not two thousand years ago. Yeah, whatever. Five thousand <laughs> Yeah. Then it's like, yeah, you need to you need to try harder, or For you verisimilitude, need to... verisimilitude. Exactly, exactly. I. So you're saying put your, that put down your gin and tonic next time you <laughs> try and say that
2: word. So you're saying that a white person should not sing Aida in a production like that. I think that's... I want. I'm going to make sure you're on the record saying that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think that was confusing. I think that is confusing, and I and I think I don't think that's right.
2: Okay, so. Now, should we look at your casting decisions going forward?
0: Hey, man. uh, You know what? This is for another show, but (laughs) over the summer, coming off the Opera America conference, I had a a come-to-Jesus moment about how little I was doing as a director Mm -hmm. to change the diversity of opera in this country. Mm -hmm. Yes, primarily racial diversity, but the sexual diversity and the financial diversity of opera in this country. And I realized I wasn't doing enough. Okay. Okay. And now this is like, this is this type of line of argument is on my mind all the time, and I'm trying to figure out what I can do about it, what I as an artist can do about it.
2: Okay, well, Aida's not the only opera that, you know, has to do with race and that has specific, you know, uh, characters in mind that come from it's, specific places in the world. It certainly so. isn't.
0: It certainly isn't. No. Okay. No, no, no. It, that, and that's why the choice of repertoire is so important. We're going to step aside. When we get back, Montserrat, excuse me. Sorry, Montserrat. Montserrat died last week at the age of 85. We're going to listen to some of her performances, and we're going to remember her life and her lyricism. It's on America's Talk Radio Show about opera, Opera Box. We're on WNUR 89.3 FM. <laughs>
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
0: Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Alright, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polenzani, composer Gregory Spears, Intendantin Kirsten Harms, and Countertenor Jakub Josef Olinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to SoundCloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed.
1: Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score.
0: Welcome back to Upper Box Score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM. Temper Chalk Talk. Last week, Monserrat Caballé passed away at the age of eighty five. Cause of death is unknown, as far as I can tell. Uh, She was in the hospital for a gallbladder operation, I think it was, and um, passed away. Lots of commiserations.
2: Lots of tweets being. Well, the cause of death out. has not been released, but I'm sure they know what it is. We're going to listen to uh some performances uh over the next 15 or so minutes. And we're going to start with uh the performance that was really her international breakthrough. Um, in 1965, Marilyn Horn was scheduled to perform a concert version of Lucrezia Borgia and fell ill, and Montserrat Caballé was the replacement. Uh, here is the opening cavatina, Come Bello, from that performance. So a a big splash for her uh, debut at Carnegie Hall, replacing Marilyn Horne and Lucrezia Borgia. My first experience listening to Monterey Caballé was as a 15-year-old homo <laughs> listening to records borrowed from the library and coming across the Colin Davis recording of uh, Così Fantute. Uh, I think that recording was made in the 70s with Nikolai Guetta, Janet Baker in the cast um the royal opera covent garden um this is the recording that i listened to for years before i listened to any other recording of this opera and there are so many amazing moments uh as Fiordiligi uh for caballet but one of the memories i will never forget is hearing this first act finale for the first time um this is the um finale where the uh, Guillermo and Fernando are getting up from their supposed uh, sickness after taking the arsenic and uh, being a little bit delirious and getting a little bit more um, urgent with their uh, professions of love to the sisters. And the little like ornament, the little arpeggio that uh, Caballé does at the end has never been sung better. So I don't have a score in front of me, but that um, ornament has a jump of maybe like a 13th or something ridiculous like that. And we get to hear Caballé's famous chess voice connected perfectly into a floated high note. And indeed, it was those floated high notes that she's so famous for. Uh, But she's also famous for her bel canto. And we have to remember that she sang really, really difficult bel canto roles. Uh, She was really the one who recorded a ton of this obscure bel canto. Uh, She had a recording in the 60s of just Rossini rarities, and nowadays we've heard of this opera, Armida, but back in the 60s, it wasn't so common. Let's hear a little bit of the theme and variations rondo that Armida gets to sing, uh, D'Amore al Dolce Impero. So obviously she had a phenomenal technique, uh, incomparable technique, but she also was an amazing musician. And there are many anecdotes out there about, you know, her showing up to a recording session and opening up the score. And everybody can hear that it's the first time that the score is being open and she's about (laughs) to record whatever it is. Um, there are many anecdotes out there and great tributes. I encourage you to do a little digging around and reading and YouTubing. Uh, there's really too much to comment on here, uh, especially with the Freddie Mercury thing. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> That's
0: the only thing I remember is the 92 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. Uh, when but she did that song. With
2: let's him. hear one of her most famous uh, floated me. This is from a 1975 uh, performance uh, in, at the Gran Teatro del Liceo in Barcelona. Uh, just the end of Signore Ascolta.
0: Great to have you back, sir. Thank in you. The
2: um, I wanted to shout out to uh, Third Eye Theater Ensemble here in Chicago. Um, a opera company, I don't know their entire history, but uh, they're you know, a few years old at this point. And right now they're in the middle of a run of a show called uh, Patience and Sarah which is a, a show about a lesbian couple. Um, composer Paula Kimper, libretto Wendy Persons, based on the novel by Isabel Miller. I'm sure it's based on a novel that I should have read, but I didn't. Um, at any rate, they've moved from the prop theater to uh, theater wit, which is a larger venue. They've added um, Alex, um, Alex Bork. Uh, Alex Enyart, as a yeah. conductor, and they now have uh, a small band performing as the orchestra. Um, they're just growing, and uh, that's very exciting to see. Uh, and I saw the performance on Sunday, and I heard uh, Diana Stoic in the role of Patience and a Metz soprano who um, I had never heard before, but her name is Liana Genet- Genitis as Sarah, uh, outstanding singing, and Stephen Hobe, uh, as um, the, the baritone playing the role of Parson Peel, another fantastic performance. So good on them.
0: That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The new general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Be uh, sure to leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For creative consultant Oliver Camacho, I'm George Cedarquist. asking you to continue the conversation about opera when it's time to celebrate your next birthday. I just had mine last week, and it was a big one. We're back on Monday, October 15 at 9 p.m. Central when we're joined live via phone by Wall Street Journal opera critic Heidi Wilson. Plus, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on those stories. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.